Hello, and welcome to the Victory Podcast. I'm your host, Monique Watson. On this episode, I sat down with Ariel Shelton Davis, a art administrator who works for the Kennedy Center and does a couple of other things that she'll talk about during the episode. We spent some time talking about what it's like um, getting into art administration, why she kind of went that route versus just pure performance. And we also talked about the importance of diversity, equity, inclusion, uh, DEI for short, um, and its role in the world of mainstream orchestras, as well as creating pipelines for up and coming artists in the world of jazz and orchestra settings. Let's take a listen. So welcome to the Victory Podcast. I'm your host, Monique Watson. And today I have the wonderful pleasure to have Ariel Shelton Davis. How are you doing, Miss Miss Ariel Davis? How are you doing today? (laughs) I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited for today's conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So for the listeners, I'll give a quick little rundown of what we're going to go over today. So um, we'll talk a bit about how about Ariel, her background, how we know each other. And then uh, we'll talk about her um, professional side and so how she got into the world of arts, cultural organization and social impact. um, Why that versus the performance side of the arts um, tips or others in the field and whatever other organic conversations that sort of come out of that. So. Let's get into it. So, Ariel, for the people, let's uh, give them a bit of background from your perspective about how we know each other and a little bit about your professional background. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we met at the Mecca, Howard University, uh, you know, in what seems like uh, eons ago, but also yesterday. Uh, Facts. I know. <laughs> Yeah, like I had roommates that were good friends of yours. Shout outs to like Jude Stelly and Lawrence and uh, Myron, that whole crew. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so it was like through mutual friends. And I just always like dug your vibe and how cool you were oh, and chill you were. And yeah, so it's been like really cool to you know, be able to have the internet and the power of Facebook to stay connected over the course of the past years. Um, but yeah, I mean, I was lucky because I found like a crew of folks to hang with that were not necessarily in the School of Music as much as I love my buds in the School of Music. Um, and yeah, I know Monique, you were definitely one of those folks that I was like, yay, friends that are outside of the arts. um yeah yeah, just like having conversations with you know people in different sectors is something that I'm always into and intrigued by and I think it all just kind of bleeds into one another you know so like yeah that's I think basically our background absolutely and and maybe a quick high level just about your um professional background yeah so Okay, I'll uh, try to keep it relatively brief. I, as I mentioned, went to Howard. I studied music business while I was there. And um, part of the reason I even went to Howard was because they had a music business track. I 
um, had, you know, done all the things in high school as a musician. I'd been in all the youth choir or youth orchestras, excuse me, and um, youth bands and um, had sat first chair in many an ensemble and uh, really enjoyed playing. I'd also, you know, like taught my high school peers. Um, and maybe real quick, which instruments. which mm-hmm. instrument you were playing? Just I don't think you mentioned that. Oh, of course. Sorry. Yeah, I played the French horn. Yes. <laughs> so yeah. So I yeah I I um I ended up yeah going to Howard with the French horn in my hand, um partially because they had this music business track and definitely because I uh, wanted to explore something outside of just teaching and just playing fully. Um, They were things that I enjoyed doing, but I wanted to, you know, push myself to doing something a little different and to explore something a little different. So um, when I got to Howard, um, I ended up continuing to play like really profusely and I was really lucky because I had a teacher who also helped tap me into different freelance opportunities throughout uh, the city of DC. Shout out to Joseph Levinsky. Um, and I, again, continue to love performance, right? Like playing the French horn was something that I really adored and got a lot of joy out of, but I still felt as though it wasn't really like my calling. And um, even in my track with music business and, and even with everything that I was learning during that time, I still didn't quite understand what it might look like to do something other than perform and to teach. And so I actually ended up leaving Howard a little early um, because I felt as though I wasn't, you know, heading down the path that I really ultimately wanted, even though I couldn't fully describe what that path looked like. I didn't really know what it meant to work in arts admin, uh, you know, at that time. I, I, I didn't really have, you know, folks around me um, that could help kind of guide me into that lane. And so um, I ended up leaving like right before my last semester, still playing the French horn, still freelancing again, but um, pairing that with bartending actually and working in um, different restaurants and I like really had a great time during that part of my life. I learned so much. It um, like working hospitality I tell people all the time is such a crucial skill set because you know you're really push to interact with different people, different backgrounds and to really serve um like straight up serve and so for me that was a really important moment uh, of learning because it you know started to get me outside of this box that I felt like I had kind of been confined to uh the box of being just a performer and just educator again things that I loved and things that took a lot of work that I wanted to kind of branch out of and away from so um, fast forward 
and I'm working at Busboys and Poets in DC. I'm being inspired like on a regular basis at this point by, you know, other artists and freelancers and entrepreneurs and activists that would come into that space on a regular basis. And I was starting to grow connections as well. And those connections kind of pushed me to, you know, kind of realizing that there was this potential to do my thing, you know, uh, quote unquote, behind the scenes, right? Like behind the curtain. I was seeing it in action a lot more regularly uh, at that stage. And so I ended up deciding to go back to Howard to, you know, wrap up my degree. Um, now having like a clarified sense of what it meant to work in ad arts admin, you know, having those folks around me. And I also um, at that time began to reach out to people that I had seen kind of grow their own um, organizations or, or festivals in their own rights. So one of the first folks that I reached out to was a woman by the name of Amy Bormat, uh, who runs the Washington Women in Jazz Festival. And, uh, you know, the call to that organization struck me in particular because being a Black woman playing a brass instrument, there were many, 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 many a time where I'd be the only one, right? Like the, either the only woman in the brass section, period. Like that includes all the other brass instruments, right? Not just the horn section. Either I'd be the only woman on stage in that way or um, I'd be the only, you know, woman um, in an ensemble, in a smaller ensemble, you know, like if we're doing a, a quintet gig or, you know, a, a small brass ensemble gig, like I'd be the only one. And so the fact that there was this platform that Amy was building, uh, you know, dedicated to women, uh, particularly in jazz, uh, was just something that I was really struck by. And so I worked with her for a couple of years. And um, within my first year of working with her, we actually ended up being invited to produce a Women in Jazz Festival out in uh, Sweden. Um, and so that, of course, was like immensely exciting and was an indicator for me that, you know, um, arts admin was the way to go. Ooh, so, yeah. From going there, to Sweden? <laughs> you fancy? Yeah. That's cool. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it was a lot of fun. Um, yeah, so, yeah, I mean, I, I took that that energy and, you know, I, I basically spun that into the work that I ended up doing um, with the musicianship, where I helped build curriculum for after-school and out-of-school music programs. And then from there, I worked with an organization called National Art Strategies, um, where we gave like professional development uh, sessions to arts administrators across the nation. That experience was like profoundly impactful for me, just, you know, seeing what it looked and felt like to bring folks together um, to talk about issues, you know, that they were tackling firsthand. And eventually, um, yeah, I, I, you know, took those experiences and a few others and landed a gig with the Kennedy Center, where I've been now for four years, uh, which is crazy. <laughs> uh, it's a lot of work, but it's good work. Um, uh, and I'm, yeah, working in the social impact department there now. So, yeah, that's kind of been like my journey uh, for the most part. Yeah, those were some of the biggest 
moments, I would say, that, that kind of got me to where I'm at. Absolutely. You talk a bit about um, being sometimes and working the social impact side and being sometimes the only, whether it's the only woman or the only black woman, the only person of color in an ensemble um, and I'm wondering or, or in an orchestra or what have you, what kind of a assembly of musicians. Um, do you notice sort of uh, where where is sort of the classical music world in your view um, as far as their work on diversity, equity, inclusion, right? Or adding more people of color or people from diverse backgrounds within an orchestra or within some larger, you know, festival, whatever. What are you sort of seeing in the world from, from whether it be your Kennedy Center social impact side, sort of what's going on there or is there a lot of work being done there or is there some more opportunities where kind of does that part of the arts sort of sit on that spectrum of improvement? Yeah, I would say the orchestral field is about 50 years behind. Um, so five, five, zero, that, 50 years? Five, zero. Yeah, at least that. So here's the thing, like straight up, when I first started working in arts admin, my dream job, right, once I discovered it as a vocation, was to be an orchestra manager. I wanted to be the one doing all the fun things, you know, like, you know, contracting the musicians for certain days and making sure the logistics were right. Everybody had a stand, everybody had, you know, seat, like all those fun, you know, nerdy logistical things. I still to this day really dig. And so I at first wanted to be an orchestral manager. I one one um, project that I ended up landing was uh, developing a fellowship program for a youth orchestra out in LA, um, and this was maybe two or three years into my arts admin like trajectory, right? And the fellowship program ultimately got funded, um, which was great. It now you know provides access to young people. Uh, particularly black youth that are interested in getting like firsthand experience and being in an orchestra. So that's wonderful and that's beautiful. One of the things that I discovered in the research for that, um, that, that opportunity though, was just how far back many orchestral members themselves are in talking and thinking about diversity and inclusion. And I discovered this because we, you know, had surveys go out to these musicians. Um, me and, and my consultant partner on that project at the time um, also, you know, looked at many a white paper and, you know, a, a file around the experiences of uh, Black uh, people that had gone through orche orchestras or had been a part of orchestras. And we also looked at, you know, many of the... Um, things that orchestra members themselves were saying time and time again about the idea of pushing and striving for greater diversity within their ranks. And um, the way that the orchestra world is set up it is one in which, quite frankly, you, um, of course, need to be highly skilled in your performance, right? You have to be an, an incredible musician. Um, and in order to do that, you have to go to like the most elite 
schools, uh, in other words, the most expensive schools, right? The schools that are hardest to get into, the schools that are like super competitive. Um, the schools where, you, you know, you need a whole lot of mom and dad support to get you there, right? And so there's that. Um, and also you have to know someone that knows someone <laughs> that is in a key position to bring you into an orchestra, like quite frankly, because it is so expensive, there's absolutely a, a, a large part of it that is based on who you know. Like getting into an orchestra is largely based on who you know. And it's one of those um, dirty secrets, quite frankly, that uh, a whole lot of people know and recognize and are fully aware of, but uh, many are, are also unwilling to change or shift because of the highly competitive nature of the business. I think folks don't know how to get out of their own way around it. And so you end up with this, this model where, you know, an orchestra and its value um, is held and placed by certain critics. Um, I'd say, you know, at least 98% white, you know, critics, you know, that are in uh, very widely read and viewed uh, sources. Um, and you also have orchestral members who they, you know, themselves, like, have not had the experience of being around many diverse, you know, populations and people, because, you know, many of them have come from these elite backgrounds. And I saw that myself growing up, like, when I was in, you know, these youth orchestras, best believe, you know, everyone around me had their own instrument that was top quality that, you know, their parents paid for, you know, thousand dollar instruments. They were taking lessons on a regular basis. You know, there, there was that generational wealth that was feeding into their skill set and how that was being built. And um, I was lucky that I had a village around me that helped me get where I needed to go in a different way. You know, I, I definitely didn't go through the field because I had that kind of support, that kind of generational wealth support, you know. And so with that, um, you know, yeah, the orchestra field to this day is still like just built around this classism, you know. And um, because of that, it's absolutely at least 50, if not more, 50 years behind in terms of, you know, shaking and shifting uh, the way that things go. And to be very, very frank, and I'm not trying to be negative here, I'm just trying to be real. I, I, um, I'm, I'm curious to see how things will end up landing post-COVID uh, because of the way that it's modeled at this moment. Um, yeah. Yeah, it'll be interesting. Um, and I had a conversation with my cousin after, um, sort of we talked on that, the other thing, um, and he was talking a bit, you know, about gateways and, um, we were talking about how he's, you know, long history of working, you know, he's gone to some of those elite schools at Ogden School of Music in Chicago and, masters of piano, classically trained and all that kind of same stuff. And so because of that and, and his and his ethnic background, he often in the past has been asked on many boards or conversations or, or those kind of things that they have of, on diversity. And he's like, I've started saying no, because I feel like, and it's an interesting, and I'd like to get your take on this, interesting idea of, and, and I think it holds true for DEI efforts across 
um, industries is it's not on us, us being people of color, to solve the problem, right? To to speak mm-hmm. out and be the voice. It is we don't. And, and so he's like, I'm not interested now. His his interest is now in 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 improving the pipeline of musicians, right? So to your mm-hmm. point, to the to the generational wealth, to allow giving people more access along the way, so that they can be able and have the skills necessary <clears throat> to be in orchestras or whatever they want to do, whether it's you know fine arts, you know, creating access. That's the stuff he's interested in now. So it's a very um, um, conversation. What are your thoughts there around DEI is important, right? We we can all mm-hmm. agree that it's important. Um, where is where do you see people like yourself or sitting in that world? Is your interest still in in being helping to facilitate it, or is it paired with you know getting people that don't look like you? who have those positions of privilege um, more involved. Are you seeing more of that happening starting to shift in a post-George mm-hmm. Floyd, Black Lives Matter going on kind of world? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. I mean, oh my goodness. So yes, I'm right there in alignment around that, around, you know, that, that, fact that ultimately the work has to be in um, empowering and stewarding resources for people of color, um, for Black people to get what they deserve based on their skills, you know? Um, Yeah, I, as I mentioned, when I first started working in arts admin, I wanted to get into orchestral management, you know? Um, and I have steered away from that because I know that in order to do that work, right, I I wouldn't be able to do the work that I do find necessary of stewarding resources and redirecting, um, opportunities in a way that empowers Black communities, quite frankly. Um, I think it's absolutely important to, you know, take and reserve your time and to um, be careful with where you're saying yes or no. I I mean, yeah, that, that whole notion of, you know, not being interested or not even not interested, but just being like, I'm not going to spend energy and time in telling um, mostly white organizations how they need to do better. Um, I'm going to instead spend this time to empower the community itself like yes that's exactly that's exactly why I kind of you know ended up steering clear of the orchestral world um yeah yeah I'm right in alignment around that yeah so like right now one um organization that I've been working with part-time is this organization called the Lewis Prize for Music and uh what really excites me about that um organization is it's led by uh, uh, executive director by the name of Deluke Smith, um, who was brought on by a philanthropist by the name of Daniel Lewis. And uh, Dan used to give a lot of money. I mean, you know, millions, right, to many different orchestras around the country. And he's still a supporter of, of orchestras, you know, that are, are doing uh, real work. 
right? But he became disenchanted over time with this giving because he'd, you know, go back to orchestras and he'd ask them. So we know that, you know, the opportunities for music education in largely Black and brown communities has fallen drastically, you know, in the course of several years. What are you all doing about this? Like, I mean, he would, Dan would, you know, read up on the National Endowment for the Arts and their reports, one of which, you know, outlined how between I want to say it was the late 1980s to the early 2000s um, in majority white school districts, music education fell by about 1%. So it largely remained, you know, the same. There was still the opportunity to learn music in your school, right? But in black and brown communities, it fell by over 50%, which is absurd, (laughs) particularly in America where black folks in particular have done so much for music. And so now he's diverted his funding because all that orchestras weren't addressing these issues to help support um, organizations that are very clearly directing resources and very clearly directing opportunities for empowerment in black and brown communities. Um, Just uh, a month ago or so, we actually announced uh, the awardees of $500,000 grants. Four of them were distributed. So 1.5 million went out the door to four different organizations, uh, four of which are led by people of color. Um, And so that's the kind of work, you know, working with like the Lewis Prize, right, is where I get so much joy and so much excitement because that's the type of um, shift in resources and work that I know I've had to take personally and that I'm excited to see more and more people take as well in order to ensure that there's a stronger legacy in the future, uh, an opportunity in the future for, for Black communities. Yeah, that's. I think that's so interesting and important for that to be such an important work that's, that's sort of shifting because um, I talked about this with on one of our COVID series episodes with uh, my aunt, Dr. Sabrina Bent. So if, listeners, if you're listening, pause this, go to that episode, listen to the whole COVID series, come back. OK, great. Now you come back. Great. Welcome back. Um, but it was really <laughs> but it was really interesting sort of in the in the in a non-musical world, but still sort of it's conceptually the same topic around DEI. She mentioned it. Um, being on a call with her former medical school. She's a board certified anesthesiologist. All that good stuff's been practicing for 20, 25 plus years, most of my life. Um, So, but she was on a call and sort of those conversations of the percentage of African-Americans in medicine is the same as it was when she was in medicine, going in medicine 30 years ago. And all these efforts of, of diversity, equity, inclusion, and and an interesting point brought up by someone else is that a lot of people confuse having these conversations and trainings as actually doing the work as the work. Mm-hmm. Like if we're just talking about it, that that's enough. It's like mm, that's not the work. The work is actually moving yeah. money and resources and making those opportunities available for qual because there's plenty of qualified skilled people and 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 removing the barriers to allow those people to be to get the skills they need to to qualify as well so yeah it's just interesting so 
yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm curious, like, and I, I know we've spoken about this a little bit before, but I mean, for me, I'm always curious about what's happening in other sectors, right? And so, like you mentioned, uh, your aunt, you know, doctor, and that uh, lack of movement happening in the industry. And yeah, I mean, I just, I, I've, I've heard that from so many others. I mean, I know in the orchestral field, there have been uh, many a fellowship provided that, again, provide the opportunity for Black and brown folks to learn what it means to be in an orchestra itself, right? And so these fellowships will last a year, maybe a couple of years. You know, folks get a chance to be on the stage with the orchestra, perform with the orchestra on a regular basis, all of that. And those kind of programs have been happening, uh, you know, for some time now. But I know there was a study that came out recently that was like, okay, yeah, these fellowship programs have been happening. These people have gotten these experiences, but they still don't get hired. <laughs> and so what... Which is crazy, right? You have... You know, really the point, you know? Like, yeah. ultimately... Yeah, yeah. It's absurd. It's, like, literally antithetical to the whole point of the fellowship program, one would think. And so it just becomes, you know, there's the bigger question, like, what really is holding us back here then? And, yeah, I, I think... Hmm, I mean... I'm gonna go there. I think in this country, we look at classical music as the music for white people. We look at, you know, rap, hip hop as the music for black folks. Um, we've been mistaught that jazz is also music for white folks. Um, you know, a lot of us sadly have not been taught the full history of where jazz comes from and that jazz is black music. And so, thing because of all of that that happens in nonprofit arts organizations where you know there's this um, steadfast embrace of those cultural uh, you know um, pieces you know classical music the jazz to a degree you know um, that are being like reserved and held on to almost like a museum right um, and a lot of it is being uh, uplifted by people that have a whole lot of money because this stuff costs a lot of money, right? Um, and on the outside of these nonprofit arts organizations, that's where you get the more colorful, the more culturally viable, the more, to me at least, interesting <laughs> creative work, you know? And so uh, something that I've just, you know, really been questioning especially as of late, is how we can kind of cross those barriers, you know? How can we make our, our arts organizations, our arts institutions, uh, reflect as much as possible what's happening outside of their marbled walls? Like, how can we make sure that, you know, anyone can come into an arts organization and feel like they see themselves, feel like they see their community, feel like they're at home? And so that's the work that I've been trying to tackle, you know, for four years now. And as long as I'm in the industry, I'll always, you know, just question it. Because what we don't want is, you know, a orchestra playing Beethoven and Mozart a million and one times to an audience of, you know, less than a hundred people, <laughs> you know, with, you know, 2000 feet seats empty, which is what I anticipate will happen once, you know, uh, COVID, leans away and 
all of these amazing artists and creative people outside of those walls, not getting the payment that those folks on stage are getting paid. Um, I mean, you know, conductors make millions of dollars. Orchestra members, many make, you know, six figure salaries. I know some amazing creative people that are living below the poverty income line. That's an issue. And so, yeah, I, I mean, I could go on and on and on, but it really is about shifting resources in the right direction. I think shifting the resources, and I think a lot of, and this is in a post-COVID world, are going to rethink, because um, I think it'll be some time, and this is me sort of slipping on my <clears throat> public health professional side, of it'll be some time before a lot of people are comfortable in large groups again, period, mm-hmm. full stop. And I think the view of how music happens and how we monetize large venue activities in a digital world is going to have to change so that those things can happen, right? Which then opens up the digitization of whether it be orchestras, jazz, you name it, um, the digitization where you kind of say, okay, we can do Eventbrite virtual event and to access it, you get a ticket and then that way you can open it up to a lot of people, but there's still the monetary, you know, whatever tools and that can happen in a different way. So people can experience the music mm-hmm. um, in a in a different way, but still but still be safe and be comfortable because I think that's sort of where I think for for some time there may be that discomfort that exists. So I think bridging that gap and kind of looking at the way we do. And even when you have, let's say, you know, X period of time from now where people do feel more comfortable in large spaces, I think even offering offering that virtual opportunity um, actually becomes a more inclusive potential um, Mm -hmm. for a lot of people, right? So like people who physically can't go to a Kennedy Center performance, but maybe if they said I would pay a ticket and it'd be like I was there and I can experience it, um, looking at that as a way of of expanding things for people. I think there are many people who still want the in-person live, but then like an overflow type vibe where you could just also, down, I don't know, stream it, whatever, with a ticket, special private YouTube room or something, private link. It gets sent. Yeah, definitely. And and there are, you know, some organizations, I mean, Kennedy Center itself also, that have uh, definitely done work in that manner. You know, they've done the um, live stream paid ticket experience um, a few times. And I agree that will um, more than likely have to continue to be a thing that, you know, gets produced. You know, for me, it's you know, just questioning constantly um, what we're producing, you know, um, because, I mean, maybe I'll, I'll just speak for myself for a moment. I, my own consumption online, uh, you know, I'm not typically drawn to uh, the standard orchestral, you know, show, you know, uh, I mean... And so we have to just get more creative on how we're presenting the work and how we're working um, in new and, and different ways and yeah. taking risks, quite frankly, you know, in, in that. So, yeah, yeah, time will tell. 
Indeed, indeed. I think I'll ask one more question and then I think we can wrap out towards the end and see if there's anything else. But so what would you say for for others? Maybe someone's listening to this. Maybe they, you know, you know, they're a performer or they're just interested in arts administration. What are some tips um, that would be good for them? Some exposure or ways to get into the field that you would recommend? Yeah. So one space that has been so, so, so um, important and helpful for me um, has been the space that's been built through the Arts Administrators of Color Network. Um, It was started in 2016 by Quinice Floyd, another Howard alum, Um, and it was started largely because we were hearing um, from colleagues uh, you know, that there weren't enough black and brown folks uh, to hire for salary staff positions um, and administration, that there weren't enough people to tap to be board members for arts organizations. Um, and Kwanis and myself, you know, both questioned this and thought, you know, and, uh, you know, know that that's completely untrue. And so, yeah, Kwanis founded the organization actually in 2016. I joined as a board member. And what's amazing about AAC is that it provides professional development sessions. We have a yearly convening that takes place. Um, We have a mentorship program where we connect up-and-coming arts administrators to those that are currently in the field. Um, and so, you know, with those connections come opportunities and placements in positions. I know, you know, several folks that through the AAC network have been able to really build uh, their careers and, and get their careers launched. And so uh, we also on our Facebook page, like we'll post job opportunities um, and Yes. And, you know, many people will like jump into our, our, our feed there and share things that they're trying to tackle. Uh, like recently, there was someone who, you know, shared that they were having conversations about contract negotiations or um, salary negotiations while they were considering a position. And, you know, others chimed in and, and helped guide them to, to, you know, a good place. Um, and they landed that position, got $10,000 extra on their salary. You know, like things like that will happen regularly through the AAC network. And so, yeah, so Arts Administrators of Color Network, I absolutely recommend to anyone who's looking for a space to grow and learn from as they're coming into the field. Um, I serve on the board with it. I was uh, the uh, initial board chair of the organization as well. And yeah, so I'm just really proud of the work that the network uh, just continues to build. And it, it fortifies me as well. You know, it's definitely been a space where I've gone to when I'm I'm just unsure of where to go next and, you know, and, and just facing my own challenges. So, yeah, that's definitely one of the first places I'd, I'd uh, call up. And then, yeah, I mean, internships, of course, you know, there are so many opportunities nowadays that can be found. Um, for internships. And so I always recommend that to young folks. I I know, you know, getting paid for an internship is absolutely important. Um, So, you know, seeking those over others is is something that I do call for, um, just that we can all shift our organizations to ones in which 
we're providing those paid opportunities. Um, and then another thing that I still do to this day that I did, especially when I first started, was just, you know, reach out to people and ask for informational, you know, sessions. You'd be surprised with how many folks are willing and able and excited to connect, um, you know, with you if you're coming into the field. I mean, I, I myself offer um, up that opportunity. Like if anyone ever wants to connect and have a conversation, just to learn more one-on-one, um, -on -one, I'm always down for that. So yeah, those those would be my my advice. That's the advice that I always give to, to folks when they're coming into the field. Perfect. So how would people reach out to you for this advice or pick your brain or, you know, say, hey, we want you to run the, you know, New York City Orchestra um, <laughs> because you've expressed such interest. We heard you on the Victory podcast and you're and, you know, we just hear your passion for running an orchestra. So we'd like to pay you the millions of dollars and just run it. So like Mozart uh -huh. in the jungle type thing. So how would folks get in touch with you? Social media, websites, whatever. Any upcoming yeah. projects that you want to promote or share with the folks listening? Yeah, for sure. Um, so I have a website. It's A-E-R-Y-E-L-L-E.com. Um, I'm on Instagram under that same, um, spelling of my name, Ariel, A-E-R-Y-E-L-L-E. -E. Um, so yeah, like if you go there, my contact information is there as well. Um, any exciting projects coming up? I mean, one project that did come up recently is I've been helping to um, consult with and manage this group called the String Queens. They played for the president's inauguration, which was amazing. Shout out to the lead violin, Kendall Isidore. She um, helped secure that, which was, I was just really proud of them. So that awesome. was cool. Yeah. Um, anything else coming up for the Lewis Prize? We will be um, opening up applications for the next round of funding. Um, currently, we're looking at over a million dollars of uh, funding distributed uh, in the coming year. So, yeah, I would just also recommend um, looking out for that. And then yeah, I would say those are those are the things that really come to mind the quickest. I mean, Kennedy Center, I mean, there's there's some things that are, are popping up and uh, I can share more about that a little later on. Um, but yeah, just, yeah, follow all the things <laughs> on social media. Awesome. Yeah, I'll include those. I, I took notes and I'm going to add them in the show notes below. So if you're listening to this. Just go on down, look at the notes. You have links to all the different things that you referenced today. Women's uh, Washington Women in Jazz, if that festival is still going on. All mm -hmm. kinds of Lewis Prize for Music, uh, Ariel's um, page, her Instagram, String Queens, all the things. Follow it all. Support it all. <laughs> do all the things. Mm -hmm. We're helping to, you know, elevate, you know, people of color and voices, especially in this this Black History Month. I try and do it all the time, but you know, this is a special effort. So listen to all the things. Uh, but yeah, thank you so much for your time today. And it's been a pleasure having you on. Yes, thank you so much. Really honored to join the lineup. 
Thanks again to Ariel for sitting down with me. And I think it was a really good conversation. And I hope in listening to this, you learned a lot of cool information and maybe some tips and tricks you can take with you. As always, please share this podcast with your friends, your family, and even your enemies. Also, if you're looking for ways to support this podcast, in addition to sharing and subscribing, we have a couple of ways you can do that. So you can join our Patreon page, and that'll give you early access to episodes, exclusive content, all kinds of great stuff, including exclusive merch that you can only get as a Patreon. And as well, if you want to just directly support with some merchandise with some Victory Podcast logos from stickers and t-shirts, you can visit that as well. Make sure to check out our website to find all this information at the T-H-E Victory, V-I-C-T-O-R-Y, podcast.com. I'll end this episode as I do every episode. Every problem has a solution. It's whether you're willing to do the work to find it. Let's do the work and be victorious.